I've shared this quote with you before, and I always, always take the opportunity to use it when I can. Rabbi Abraham Heschel, one of the wisest men I've ever encountered, and might be one of the most brilliant philosophers of the 20th century, in his definitive book on the philosophy of Judaism called God in Search of Man, states this, it is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. I was asked last week if I could uh, hang around here for just a little bit because this verse in our study of Ecclesiastes came up and it, it got me by the teeth, by its teeth, and it wouldn't let me go all week. And so I was asked, apparently, that it had done, done that to someone else too, someone I trust and someone I love, and they came to me and they said, could you now do the sequel to this because of where we ended before? Remember what the wisdom of Solomon teaches us. The wisdom of the Kohelet says, do not say, and, and, and again, in its context of grief, in its context of looking back upon our lives as the Kohelet is doing right now, looking back and uh, confessing and, and um, uh, realizing you know, and sharing that with us, his journey of repentance, his journey of, uh, of reflection, if you will, as he nears the end of his life. He said in grief, in the context of as, as we're grieving, do not say why were the former days better than these. For it is not from a stand of what? Wisdom that you ask this. It isn't wise. So asking why are the old days better than now? How many uh, in some form or shape this week was looking back and reminiscing and doing that which we uh, have been told was unwise to do. By the way, the Kohelet's not saying don't reminisce. It's not saying in a context of grief, don't miss the person that you're grieving. He's not saying that at all. He's just saying don't ask the question of why those days were better than now. And we spent last week on one section of that but it seems to, uh, it seems to uh, that if we are, it runs to a deeper problem because one of the things that, that grief uh, is supposed to do is that it's supposed to happen in the moment, right? And so we talked a lot about trying to tell people who are grieving to believe in the future hope. In other words, to take them out of the moment. In other words, to tell them to quit what? Quit grieving. But this is another way in which to take them out of the element, is to look back and say, why were they so much better? So I just introduced a concept to us then as to take it maybe a little bit out of the circle of dealing with grief and to talk about church, to talk about us. And the problem when the church does this the problem when the church decides to operate from this unwise platform, when the church asks, why were the former days so much better than today? I'm not sure there's a single cause of the church's inability to grow beyond the point of where she is, except that we're constantly asking, why were the good old days so good? put the question in more modern terms is that any time that the church faces conflict or controversy and we're required to deal with it, we're required to deal with the conflict and the controversy and figure out what we're going to do to move forward, the modern parlance of this question right here is, but we've always done it this way. 
By the way, isn't this Laodicea's condition? I am rich and have need of nothing. We've always done it this way. I have my tradition and it's sacred because God says that this was the way that it is. Rich and have need of nothing. Jesus is knocking on the door looking to reveal more and more of himself and the church stands on the other side to having answered this question, not just asking it, not just asking why were the days before us so much better. The church in Laodicea has answered that question. They were, period. So then the church fails to look forward. And in order to be safe, she constantly looks where? To the former days. So I was asked to address this a little more so that maybe the church can get some tools, if you will, to move forward. So I'll begin today by telling you that um, it's been said that journalism is history's first draft. History, looking back to the former days, allows us time to reflect and change course when we learn more of what it reveals. History isn't there to be revered, it's there to be examined. By the way, it's the, it's the only thing that we see clearly. I shared with you last week that, that when Jesus is, is walking amongst the lampstands, John heard his voice and the voice was where? It was behind him. Because in Jewish thought, in Hebrew thought, the future is behind us because we can't see it. Jesus calls to John from the future, gives him a future revelation. The past is in front of you. History is in front of us. But Solomon would tell us it's not there to be revered, it's not there to make assumptions about history, that history can be revealed to us the more that we examine it, the more that we study it. We need to keep this in mind, that looking back doesn't necessarily heal all wounds. I've shared with you before that I hate the adage, time heals all wounds, because it simply isn't true. Not by itself, at least. We need honest remembrance. We need reflection. And by the way, we need repentance when we look back. So the first temptation with faced with uh, any of the three C's, the three uh, most naughty words in all of church uh, life, if you will, the three C's, controversy, change, conflict. Change being the dirtiest word of it all, I think. Our temptation is to reach where? It's to reach back. It's to reach back for the answer. Because it lies at a time when somehow we were, we've been led to believe that the church was magically better then. One of the sacred myths we've created in the past was that, that the reason we were more holy, the reason that, that the, the past is so sacred is that we were always unified. Now we look back at a time when the church seemed to not have any conflict. And I have to ask you, is there at any point in time in history when any church has been conflict free? No. In other words, when it comes time for a change which causes conflict or controversy, one of the immediate arguments against it will be that it causes division. I don't like talking about this because it's dividing the church as if unity slash uniformity is some form of sacredness that used to exist at one time and it isn't now because you're dividing the church. I didn't mean to point at you guys, I'm just. If we honestly evaluate the church's past, we can conclude that we've never been unified and she certainly never has been uniform will always be tempted to reach for that safety, to look for that mythical, sacred time when days were just so much better than they were today. Changing, creating controversy, conflict, it's nothing new. The church was born with it. I was talking with Grady this week, and if we wanna take seriously the, the time prophecies that we have from Daniel 8, 
Um, you know, literally the very first earthquake controversy that came into the church, she was barely, she wasn't even 10 years old yet. She was just maybe possibly even a year old when the first one happened. And that was, was that there was a signal that the gospel was to go beyond Judea and head out where? Right, Idumea, Samaria, and then where? And all the world, Gentiles, my goodness. The church was born with it. The church was born into this controversy. Acts 15.1, it says, certain individuals came down from Judea. This is, this is after Paul and Barnabas are out already preaching to the Gentiles. Leaders are coming from where? They're coming from home. They're coming from the general conference. They're coming from Battle Creek because they've got a problem with the way that a couple of the missionaries are carrying out this mission to the Gentiles. They came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? You can't be saved. We remember that the church started and could be safely considered a Jewish sect. Every member up until this point was of Jewish descent and belief. The first leaders and members were all that way. They were all believers in the God of Israel. And while far from it, we're tempted to believe that the labels they carried made them uniform and unified. When the gospel began to be received by the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish, the first big conflict arises. How Jewish, how much tradition do we lay upon these Gentiles in order to welcome them into this brand new body of Christ that we believe he died to give us membership in. It was described as something. Listen how it was described. It, it, it says this. Oops, I'm going backwards. The certain individuals, after Paul and Barnabas, had what? No small dissension. What did it cause? Conflict. Immediately, it caused dissent. They were split. They were split. Paul and Barnabas do what they do. They begin to what? They begin to debate with them. Paul and Barnabas, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they have the argument in the field and they don't, don't come to a resolution. So they say, you guys, you represent those that have already been with the Gentiles. You represent that which you believe should, uh, a reasonable amount of tradition should be taught to them. You go back to Jerusalem and you talk to the leaders about it. Make our case. So the first case is made when they get back to Jerusalem. Some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered, and ordered what? Ordered to keep the law of who? To keep the law of Moses. If you've been with us in prayer meeting, uh, the, the covenant, the, the circumcision covenant begins with Abraham, but it continues on. As, as the very next covenant after Abraham is his grandson, Jacob, and then after Jacob is Moses. So not only is circumcision the sign, if you will, of what it means to be saved, what it means to, to, to be a child of Abraham, also everything in the law of who? In the law of Moses. That becomes the seal also. Their case is made. Note their point. Where is it written that this should be done? In the law. They're clear. Where they get their authority from? Where do they get their authority from? The Bible. By the way, prayer meeting goers, is circumcision and observing the law in the Bible? Oh yeah, oh yeah. How clear, as solid a Bible study as you'll ever come across. I know, that, I know that in prayer meeting, I told them that I'm gonna give you an airtight Bible study that says we should be circumcising every male before we baptize them. 
And they all laughed at me until we did the Bible study. It was airtight, wasn't it, Mel? Say, I'm not putting, you can't put words into Mel's mouth. That's why I picked on him. But note also the safety that they're looking for. Where does the safety to this conflict and dissension lie? It lies behind us. It lies reaching back somewhere in where? Somewhere in the past. They believe there was a time when, there were, when we were so unified on this. This was a fundamental belief. I can't understand why we're even debating this. Circumcision, the law of Moses, children of Abraham, are you guys nuts? There's a unity that they're reaching for, that they felt was there. After there'd been much debate, so they get the debate, pro-circumcision and the keeping of the law in Moses, uh, the, the, the others, they, they've all spoken. Peter gets up finally to, to add to his debate and also, by the way, to shut it down, I'll show you. But he said, after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become what? And become believers, he says. And God who knows the human heart testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. I was there, he said. I've been preaching to the Gentiles. I taught them about Jesus, and something happened as soon as I taught them about Jesus. As soon as I asked for their, uh, their confession of faith, you know what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it did to who? Just as it did to us. Note one thing about Peter's argument real quick. He appeals to their own experience. You guys remember what happened to us? It happened to them too. In cleansing their hearts by faith, he made no distinction between them and us. So therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's amazing. I mean, it's one of the most amazing speeches ever made. When I get to heaven, I have two things I have to do with Peter. First, I have to apologize to him because I've picked on him for years. I've made fun of him for years from this very pulpit. So I'm gonna apologize to him in case he sees any video from it. But the next thing I'm gonna do is fall on my knees with him and say, man, you let the Spirit speak that day. I'm not sure I've been so moved by any words. And look what it did. The whole assembly, what? Kept silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas. They told of the signs and the wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. It silenced the dissension. Why? Because they knew exactly what they were saying. Because the leaders of righteousness by faith appealed to their own experience, they knew exactly what they were saying. It's what the true gospel does, by the way. Have controversy and have controversy over whatever you want, but the one thing that'll silence it always is the gospel. Not my version of the gospel, not my interpretation of the gospel, but the gospel. It silences it. He has the credibility of being a fellow believer. He has a credibility of trying to live with this tradition that they bring forward for generations. And it's caused nothing but conflict, he says. Neither, it's something that neither you or me or our ancestors have ever been able to bear. This conflict over these fundamental beliefs, we've never been able to bear them. It's caused nothing but controversy in our lives. It's an unbearable yoke. It never worked. It hasn't worked since Sinai. It didn't work at Sinai, he says. So he's saying, it cost us too much. 
Are we really willing to continue this? Are we really willing to take these brand new babies in Christ and throw this burden upon them? Note the basis for the decision. They had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the leaders. So I want to share with you three things. One thing that they did and two things that they didn't do in order to resolve this. So that we, maybe we can talk about how we can uh, apply these to be able to move forward. That's what I was asked to do today. How does the church move forward to keep from looking back and asking why were the former days so good? Why is, is, are, are, are we constantly looking to, to make unsacred the sacred tradition that has been handed down to us? First thing, it's the leaders that made the decisions. This group picks two leaders, Paul and Barnabas, and sends them back to the gathering of leaders back at Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem Council. It's the first general conference meeting. They're all together. We gotta do something. We have to solve this in order to be able to move forward. So they selected leaders to do it. So note number one, leaders lead. Leaders make decisions. Not majority rules. By the way, are majorities unified? Well, they could be, right? But are majorities always right? Majorities rarely get it right, right? Especially in the Bible. Majority, in fact, not one objector to the golden calf. Majority ruled that day at the foot of Sinai. Did it not? Good idea? No. (laughs) To let the majority rule. By the way, even in 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 a country that claims or on the surface appears that the majority runs it, it's not true. It's leaders that should run it. Leaders should step up. Slavery, women's suffrage, civil rights, voting rights. At one time, the majority ruled that denied freedom to all of those groups. Then some leaders stepped up. Some leaders stepped forward and began to make some decisions. And they ended up bringing who with them? The majority. Ah. I want to show you in a couple places that the leaders left out what they left out in order to come to the conclusions that they did. What's missing from the decision? And I'm real nervous about to say what's about to come out of my mouth. But notice what they didn't say. Let's form a committee to study the Bible to see what it says about what we should do next. This was not reached by Bible study nor by tradition according to a particular Bible study. Peter Peter says it went this way. God who knows the what? The human heart testified to them by giving them the what? The Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The Holy Spirit was falling on the Gentiles just as it fell on them. And by the way, it was doing it without making any of the decisions to be circumcised or begin to follow any of the law of Moses. It happened the second that they had faith in Jesus. Peter said, if you want proof that God requires nothing of our tradition in order to join us, look at what has happened, he said. He points out that God has given the same spirit to the non-circumcised that he gave to the circumcised. It happened when he preached, back in chapter 10, when Peter began to, to preach this. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who what? All who heard the word. And by the way, what word was he preaching from? Was there anything in the Bible about Jesus yet? No. They were writing 
the Bible that we use today. They couldn't, they couldn't appeal to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had not been written yet. Peter was speaking from his own what? From his own experience. If anybody was skeptical in the audience, they say, you know what, this guy sounds too good to be true. How do you know? Peter gets to say what? I was there. You see this shoulder? He put his hands on these shoulders. He put his hands on my head. He kissed my cheek. He forgave my sins. You want proof? I'm right here. Circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. See, that's why in the, in the, in the council, once he says that the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the Gentiles without them having to be circumcised or without them having to keep any of the law, the law of Moses, it silenced the argument, didn't it? They were astounded. It ended the argument. The Holy Spirit became the arbitrator or arbiter of this controversy. Pretty cool. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Why did you go with uncircumcised men and do what? And eat with them. I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it had upon us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. He said, John baptized with water, but we will be baptized by what? He's referring back to their baptism even. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Usually when God speaks out loud, it should shut us up, right? And note again what happened after he said it. And when they heard this, they were silenced until they began to do what? Until they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The Holy Spirit was the factor that led them that, where, that what, uh, what makes anybody eligible to belong to the body of Christ is the Holy Spirit living in them, the Holy Spirit willing to fall on them, the Holy Spirit willing to baptize them. Do you believe what we're telling you? These early disciples would say. The Gentiles said, yes, this guy sounds too good to be true. Well, he is true, and if you believe, come on, let's go. Welcome. So they didn't use, they led like leaders were to lead as the Holy Spirit was telling them. They used the Holy Spirit as the arbiter of this controversy and not Bible study. And the one thing other they didn't use was this. You know, guys, there was a time when we were uniform and unified on these teachings. There was the good old days. You guys really want to stray away from them now? But we've always done it this way. Peter answers it. Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? There's always a callback to when everything seemed okay. Let's just get back there. Let's get back to the sacredness of our past. The sacredness of our tradition. We haven't even been in existence 200 years. Has there ever been a time when we were without conflict? Even when we were Millerites, the Millerites began dissensions towards the, towards the end, towards the end of the prophecy by 1844. You had the date setters who said, we should set a date, and you had the non-date setters who said, no, we shouldn't. There was dissension in the Millerites. 1888, Jones and Wagner versus uh, Butler and Uriah Smith. Jones versus Daniels about church organization. Daniels versus the rest of the church about whether or not we adopt inerrant scripture as a fundamental belief. 
Froome and Nickel versus Andreessen and the nature of Christ. Dr. Ford versus Dr. Gain and righteousness by faith in the investigative judgment. And just a couple years ago, before the pandemic, the Pacific and the Columbia unions versus the general conference as to whether or not we should be ordaining women. In the third century, in the fourth century, 312, a general in the Roman army named Constantine becomes the leader of the Roman Empire on the Western Front. By 324, he now is uh, proclaimed Caesar over the entire empire by 324. And about that time is when he begins to decide to build the very first church buildings of the Christian church. Up until the fourth century, where did the church worship? There was not one single church building before the fourth century. Where'd they worship? People's houses. Greet Prisca and Aquila, Paul says, and the church in their house. That's where they met. That's where they worshiped. Constantine sees big buildings and he, he, he decides, why don't we get more and more people together? By the way, in the back of his head, he says, why don't we get more and more people together to worship the way the pagans do? Because they seem to get stuff done when they come together. There are thousands of people in them huge temples to be able to worship. So when he begins looking at a design as to, as to what, he use, what he'll use, he uses the basic Roman basilica that has been around since the beginning of the Roman Empire. It's the big, huge building that Roman magistrates would, would uh, uh, come into. And they all were designed basically the same. They were a building that uh, resembled a lot like a high school auditorium is that we, that we see. In the front, there's an elevated platform. That's where the magistrates and the judge sat to hear all the cases. And the platform was separated by a rail or by a screen. And then it went down to the floor and everyone else was, was down below there. By the way, Greek temples were the same way. The altar to the God was on an elevated platform up front. Everyone else stood and faced it. Talk a little bit about that platform. It was, it was where the ultimate of law was decided in the, Rome, in, in, in the Roman Empire. In the church, it sat the bishop and the other elders. The bishop's seat replaced the seat of the judge in the Roman Empire. And, and for a couple of centuries, almost two centuries, the bishop preached from that seat. And then there were other chairs, two rows of chairs that were surrounding that. It was for the elders. Eventually, they wanted to read scripture, so they put a desk besides the chair. And they would read scripture from the desk. And by the year, uh, by the year 250 or so, the speaking platform becomes the pulpit. The chair is then replaced by the pulpit. But this platform, this is where it happened. And I'm not sure if you just followed me a little bit. What did I just describe? By the way, what you're sitting in, the pews, do you know what year they became holy and sacred? Not until the 13th century. The 13th century. 1,200 years of church went by. Do you know where the worshipers sat before then? They didn't. They stood. So if the preacher preached for two hours, he got to sit. Guess what you got to do? Stand. See, it could be worse. It could be worse. I set this stage as to what is considered sacred and what isn't. If, if you talk to many people who have been Adventists for quite a while, they, it's not, nothing new to talk about this place, to talk about this platform as something just a little bit more holy than the rest of the place. Are you with me? The platform is what? It's sacred. 
the, the, the pulpit is sacred. But it didn't become sacred because God said it would become sacred. It became sacred all the way back to the guy that we blame for everything else wrong for about 1260 years. Our friend Constantine. The reason I set this stage here is I wanted to share with you. I'll take just the last part of our, of our study. When it comes to conflict, controversy, and change and things that we would like to do. I guess one way to be able to gauge as to what really matters to people in a church is what they decide to get riled up about. See, I don't like controversy or, or, or conflict any more than you do. In fact, I'm probably more repelled by it than you are. But it does tell me what matters to people. So what I have to share with you is that when I first came to this church, and for the past seven years, overwhelmingly, do you know what got people riled up the most since I've come? In other words, riled up enough to call me, to write me, to make an appointment to come see me. You know what upset them so much? Is what I decided not to wear and what I decided to wear. So when I was asked to come interview, it was a unique kind of uh, interview process because normally when a pastor is considering a call, they, uh, they come and they spend the weekend, you know, they preach for, for church and everything else. We couldn't do that because at the end of, let me see, I got called uh, by the elders of this church on February 10th and I was leaving on, on February 18th to go to the Dominican Republic for a, a, uh, a mission trip. I don't know why I couldn't think of a mission trip. A mission trip. So I would be gone. So there was only one weekend that was available to be able to come to here and they already had somebody from the general conference preaching here. So we said, well, what, how, what can we do? And I said, well, uh, you know, what do you have planned? And he said, well, we, we wanna interview you, the elders do, the church wants to interview you and then we're gonna feed you, we're gonna have potluck after that. I said, all right. I said, well, instead of preaching for church, why don't I just have devotion for Vespers before we do that? And so, so I did. But it was Vespers, it wasn't church. I wore my suit to church, but I wasn't preaching, I sat right there. When I came back for Vespers, yeah, it wasn't, it was February, it wasn't hot, hot. But I thought it was okay, it's Vespers. So I didn't wear my suit, but I stood right here and I gave devotion behind the biggest pulpit I ever preached behind, by the way. Anybody remember our pulpit? This wide, this tall. I felt like it was behind a wall. And I got done, had the uh, elders interview me, came back, had the church interview, all these questions, went back, re-interviewed with the elders, and then we went to lunch, uh, dinner. And there's a picture that, that is of me that Nellie took. I'm standing uh, at the head of the buffet line um, because they told us to go first, but I was stopped from getting my food because I'm standing there with an elder. And if you look at this picture, there's a look on my face because that elder had just said, and I quote word for word, I'd like to know, pastor, by what divine authority you got the notion that you could preach in my church without a coat and tie. That elder had known me for less than an hour. And it didn't get any better. By the time that I preach here, it is now July, okay? And I preached two Sabbaths in my suit in July in Phoenix. And the second Sabbath, I swear, right here, right here, I came as close to passing out as I ever had become in preaching. My suit was soaked. And I went home and I said, I can't, I can't do this. How am I gonna preach if I pass out? 
I made the mistake though of coming back the next week without the suit and, and once you appear without it, you're done. No one's gonna hear you after that. And I tried to explain why. Let me explain to you why we should do this. Let me explain to you why. And one of the reasons is, yes, I have one reason. Yes, my own comfort in the summer. By the way, it's ridiculous for any of us to be wearing a suit in Phoenix in the summer. 118 degrees? Have any of you who've advocated for wearing a suit worn a suit in 118 degrees? If you do and your business requires you to, I'm really sorry. I really am. But I can't do it. One of the things when Nellie and I sat down about weighing about whether or not to come, a call, to come here for a call, we asked one question that may have been something we really should have talked about and, and, and I brought it up and I said, babe, what about the heat? It's been 25 years since we lived in that heat. What do you think? I don't know, I don't know. I'll tell you what, we got here. You know what makes a difference? Is when you're 25 years younger and how you can handle the heat. Yes, my own comfort, but also I was called here to ask if we could possibly begin to uh, discuss some things about, uh, about how we could make our church younger rather than just have retirees come and when they, when they die off, have other retirees come to continue that circle. These leaders in the church said, I don't want the church to die. I don't want my family to know, not be in the church and to die when we die. What can we do? That's what I was asked, right? The elders that are here. And one of the things that I told him was, make church more comfortable for people to visit. I have data and, and, and polls talking to, to young people and they say that, that one of the things that, that, that makes them feel more comfortable is when they look up here, they see somebody who might resemble a little bit more like them. And guess what, they don't wear what? They don't wear suits. That was my primary reason. I explained that all I could. But during that week, I got a letter that told me, you just get up there, wear your suit. We'll make it so cold in here that you won't pass out. You don't worry about that, pastor. We'll worry about that. My suit meant so much to that person, he was willing to have you all turn blue in order for me to be able to preach here. And by the way, Without my suit even, I burn up standing here. I was wearing a shirt one day and one of you came up and went to give me a hug and put your hand on my back and she went, why are you so hot? This and the act of preaching. By the way, is it sacred, the suit? You know when we began to dress up going to church? It wasn't until the 1840s. You know why? Because no one could afford nice clothes before then. No one could afford nice clothes before the Industrial Revolution. In fact, before 1850, uh, the you couldn't go to a Methodist church with nice clothes. They wouldn't let you in. They didn't like the class distinction. One thing that nice close did was create class distinctions. And the Methodists said, we don't like that. We don't like you uh, saying, by the way, in England, it was against the law if you were lower class to wear clothes of the upper class. You weren't allowed to. Righteousness, sacred, holy. So all the argument about what's sacred and what isn't. Don't get me started on music as to what's sacred and what isn't. The only one I get louder about is music, actually. I get one more louder. Don't talk to me about the Holy Spirit and ordaining women. I don't like the way tradition and traditional sacredness treats women. I don't like the way that it treats, that this kind of thing treats anybody who is not on the inside and they may be on the outside looking in. I like taking the best fruit and putting it on the lowest shelf. 
I like taking away all obstacles between somebody walking into this church and maybe, just maybe, not making them, not forcing them, not manipulating them, but to get them to worship Jesus that day. I'd like to take away every obstacle to do that. By the way, I'll wear my suit. I wore my suit twice last month. And some of you pointed that out, that you noticed. Thank you. It's not summer yet, though. You want to know what the most sacred is to the Holy Spirit? What the most sacred is? It isn't physical space. It's not what you do uh, with the platform. The most sacred thing there is to God, the most righteous thing there is to God, is you. You. There isn't anything that means more to God than you. And if you know that and you believe that because you believe that God sent his only son because he loved us so much, if you believe that, then you look at every other human being and you say, you know what, he loves them too. And we should be willing, we should be willing not to grasp back for some sort of sacredness, but when we're shown that it's possible to remove some obstacles for people to come, for people to worship, we should be able to do it in a heartbeat. The distorters in the Galatians convinced them that they needed to be circumcised. They had to keep the Sabbath. They had to keep certain feasts. And that is how you are marked and sealed in in Abraham's righteousness. And Paul reminds them, no, no, it's not true, he says. It's not true. Where's my Galatians text? Anyway. God does supply with the Spirit work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by believing what you've heard. Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. Not a mark that you can make in the flesh. Not some law that you can keep uh, by the letter. But by having the faith of Abraham. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are a child of Abraham because Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There is no more sacred person on the planet than one that the creator of all the universe, the only righteous creature in all the universe, would offer his righteousness to. You're the most sacred thing in this whole picture. And by the way, you're not more sacred because you're wearing something. You with me? You're not more sacred because you're sitting in a sacred space. You're the sacred space. Anywhere the spirit decides to dwell is a sacred space. He doesn't dwell in a building. He could. Well, he did begin to dwell in this building the first time two people unlocked the door and walked in. That's what made this building holy, is the first two believers to walk into its space. Now it's holy. Jesus said it himself. He said it right here. Oh, sorry. I'll read. Grady will get it back. On the last day of the festival, the great day while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Let anyone who believes in me drink. As the scripture said, out of the believer's heart shall, shall flow rivers of living water. Now this is said, he said this about the spirit which believers in him were to receive for yet there was no spirit because he had not yet been glorified. We have to remember that when he went back to heaven, he left us what? He left us his spirit. The disciples mourned and cried because they were, ta- they were seeing his presence go away. He goes, no, my presence will remain here because the father when I get back there is gonna give you the Holy Spirit. His spirit is a promise to us. The promise sent the arresting officers back muttering to Caiaphas, why didn't you arrest them? No one ever speaks like this man did. See, because from Sinai, they never heard the promise. The promise isn't in the letter of the law. The promise is in the Holy Spirit. If our fathers had heard that at Sinai, if they had come up the mountain and taken the invitation, maybe there wouldn't have been this controversy.
They crucified him because he wouldn't carry out the tradition of the former days. They pointed to him and they called him the devil. Hey, and by the way, even somebody who was so steeped in tradition that they would murder the country rabbi claiming to be the Messiah, even through that act, that one bit of selfishness, that one person looking back saying, why weren't the former days better than today? Why are they so much better than today? That one act provided for you and me to still be in his body. That one act saved the world. Even his enemies get to receive it if they would just what? Believe. See, when the Spirit falls on us, how many here, I look at one, two, four, five, six. How many here were baptized right here? You know, you weren't baptized in water that day, right? You're baptized by who? By the Holy Spirit. That day it became official. I think it happened long before that, the day that you began to believe in Christ. But that day, it put a seal on it. That day it became official. Jesus said, I'm not just gonna walk with you guys, I'm gonna live in you. So the idea that we're looking forward to Jesus to where he will walk and talk among us again, no, you don't have to look forward to it. He's here. The most sacred space anywhere on this planet is the temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. And that day that you decided to believe, the Spirit said, I'm gonna dwell in you. So, the arbitrary is the Spirit. I'm not telling you, I'm not saying that we don't find value in Bible study, that we don't look back. Hey, by the way, any step that we make forward can't contradict what's came before, but it moves forward. I'm not saying don't study your Bibles. I have to tell that to people in prayer meeting all the time. I'm not saying that. We just have to realize what Bible study is for. And if it's not opening it up to this invitation to develop true sacredness, real sacredness, and to understand that the ultimate sacredness is anybody created in the image of God. Until then, we just keep asking that question. Why were the former days so much better? We continue to do that. We ignore the sacredness that is right in front of us every day. And that's my problem with tradition. I have any problem with tradition, providing we give room for the Spirit to speak and for God to dwell. And if he's determined that a tradition is no longer getting us there, then we have to be willing to let it go. He said this about the Spirit, which the believers in him were to receive, as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He's now been glorified. You're his glory. We all are. That's sacredness. And we have the Kohelet to thank for that, to point that out to us. Thank you for hanging in there just a few extra minutes.